Let me give you just a little bit of personal background, if I may. So those of you that, that may not know me, uh, get a little bit of, of background of, uh, of me personally. Um, first, there is one rule of engagement that I need to share with you. You know, in the military, you know, Command and General Staff College, they teach us all kinds of stuff. And uh, whenever you stand before a large group of people, and you're going, or you're going to brief a general officer, or, or you're in front of a group of folks, you have to be three things. Be good, be brief, and be gone. <laughs> now, they don't teach that at seminary, Pastor. You know, they just teach the be good part. Um, but uh, I'll do my best to, to live up to that standard. I was born in 1961 up in Tarrant County in Fort Worth, Texas. My parents divorced when I was a little little younger than a year old, and in many respects still wear the scars of that. Uh, my older brother is a district judge up in Tarrant County. My mom remarried a great godly gentleman named Patrick Reeves, and whatever honor or rigor you would give to my reputation or character is because of him and the Lord bringing him into my life. I love my earthly father. Don't, I mean, they're both deceased. But even in the hardest of times, you know, 1 Peter 5.10 tells us that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And whether that's marital, professional, financial, or national, the Lord is still in charge, and he brought Pat Reeves into my life. I graduated from high school down in Beaumont, Texas. Went to Lamar down in Beaumont as well. Uh, Lamar met me where I was geographically, academically, and financially. A great school. And even, you know, in one of the lesser known but good colleges of the great state of Texas, you too can become a state senator. Um, I served in the United States Army for 20 years. I was commissioned in 1984 when I graduated from Lamar. Graduated that morning, that afternoon, raised my right hand, took the oath of commissioning to support and defend the Constitution against the, of the United States against all enemies, foreign or domestic. I've been in two very large fights in my life. I've served in the demilitarized zone in Korea. I've been through two Korean winters, and as a kid, spending most of my growing up years in Beaumont, I've never been so cold in my life. Um, but the two big fights that I've been in, and remember with the Apostle Paul, what does he tell us? I think it's in Galatians, Pastor. I, there's so many books by Paul, I don't always remember which one's the right one. But he says, I've, I've run the race, I have fought the good fight. Ain't nothing wrong with a good fight. Just pick them closely, carefully, and decisively. But I've been in two. In 1991, actually in late 1990, I was stationed in Germany in 7th Corps when the Army still had uh, an entire, what we call a field formation called an Army, which is two corps or more. I was in 7th Corps. We deployed out of Germany to go to Saudi Arabia just several months after Saddam had invaded Kuwait. Found myself Christmas in the world's largest cat box known as the Middle East. Um, many months later, after the first Gulf War would go from Desert Shield to the combat operations of Desert Storm, 
I would be with 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, which is the lead regiment or the cavalry regiment that provided the initial screen and initial contact with Saddam's Republican Guard. We would slam into them the night of February 26, 1991, and I would wear various unit citations and other things associated with the largest armored engagement since World War II called the Battle of the 7th or Easting. The morning of September 11th at 9.37, I am at the Pentagon serving as a lieutenant colonel, which is just a galley slave in the Pentagon, I assure you. I was the chief donut getter in my office. <laughs> but there's nothing sexier than telling your fellow veterans, and I know there's many of you out there, particularly when they ask me, what was I doing when I got my Purple Heart in the War on Terror? And my really tough guy answer is, I was coming out of the men's restroom. Not a really sexy thing to tell guys that have been clearing buildings in Fallujah. But the Lord can use a trip to the men's restroom for His glory. I should have been killed. I was 15 to 20 yards from the nose of Flight 77, crashing into the Pentagon at 530 miles an hour. I am the only survivor by the grace of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be in the E-ring at the crash site. You do not survive an 80-ton jet coming through the building at 530 miles an hour, and I am from here to the double doors or closer from where the nose of that aircraft hits the E-ring outer wall. I did not survive that because the Army made me the toughest guy in that building. I survived it because the toughest man to ever walk this earth 2,000 years ago has something else in mind. Amen. Scripture does not refer to Christ as a veteran. It does not refer to Christ as the toughest man to ever walk this earth. But let me tell you why I know that. I won't go into all the details of the September 11th story. It is a great story of the Lord's grace. I would spend months in the hospital being put together or back together being reassembled by some exceptional physicians. But there's only one great physician. My entire medical care to rebuild me, to get me to back what the medical community calls maximum medical improvement, MMI, was four years. In my life, uh, particularly in those moments from September 11th, I made 39 trips to the operating room. I have since had um, eight more, and I'll make one more with Dr. Barry, the ophthalmologist whose office is just about a mile that way. Um, he's done the right eye, and guys, that's a good thing because that's my trigger hand, okay? But he's going to do the left eye here in another month. And I love my doctors, but I cherish my anesthesiologist, okay? <laughs> But the reason I say the Lord's the toughest man to ever walk this earth, I was a 60% total body burn with 40% of my body being third degree burn. The way you calculate a burn survivor's chances of survival is you take the number 100, subtract their age. I was 39 on September 11th when the attack occurred. And you subtract the total body burn, 60%. From my exterior burns, I had a 1% chance of mortality. 
when you add the interior burns, my inhalation injury, and I was, Dr. Williams, the attending physician at the emergency room, told my wife Mel later that I had less than five minutes before respiratory arrest because my lungs were so badly damaged. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, but I have the lungs of a 20-year smoker. There is some humor in the story. I wasn't discovering it in those moments. But you know, as I lay in that building waiting to die, because I'd given up, I'd surrendered, I did what we in the military are never trained to do. As I was struggling to get to my feet, set ablaze by the jet fuel, I pleaded for the Lord to take me. I told him I was ready. Jesus, I'm coming to see you in a very loud, screaming voice. There's nothing that will describe for you. There's no words in the English language that can describe for you the panic that grabs your heart when you realize you are dying a terrible, ghastly death and you have no way to escape the source of that death. But the moment of humor would come many months later. I was waiting to hear those words inside that hallway on September 11th, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I didn't get the good and faithful servant part, I just got the well done part. Um, this kernel went from original recipe to extra crispy. So when you go by KFC, you know, when, when Mel and I go by it, chicken is not what we, what we think about. But there were days, and I'll be serious, I mean, I, there were days, seconds, and minutes. I laid in that ICU burn unit for months in pain thresholds that give you a very, very personal idea of what the crucifixion story lays out for what Christ went through. I pleaded and I begged for the Lord to finish what the terrorists had started. But he had a different plan in mind. I would eventually get discharged, go through a number of years of reconstruction. My thumbs, my eye sockets, my ears are artificial cartilage. Guys, you got no idea what it's like to be the only man sitting in a plastic surgeon's waiting room. Think about that for a moment. Yeah. But the Lord wasn't done with me. You know, pastor said, well, why did you get into politics when we were talking in the, in the, in the office? And I said, well, besides for people to want me to be deported, um, I said, in many respects, as a soldier, you know, Colonel Clausewitz actually became General Clausewitz. He was one of Napoleon's field marshals during the Napoleonic Wars between Frederick the Great and the Thirty Years' War of Prussia and the end of the Napoleonic Wars um, in the, uh, right after Jefferson had done the, the, the uh, Louisiana Purchase. Clausewitz was one of our mil uh, profession of arms, a military, um, what we would call battle captains uh, during the, uh, the Napoleonic Wars in both the Prussian and other armies. He wrote the classic on war and his famous quote from that is that war is politics by another means. The inverse is true as well. Politics is war by another means. The nine principles of war are very much the same in our political battles. 
and what we fight over in policy. So when people say we've got, get, got to get rid of politics, what's the root word of politics? The body politic determines what the policies of our country and our levels of government will be. As a soldier, look, I don't want it to sound corny, but as a soldier, I'm trained to fight. The first thing I did when Senator Averett resigned, I had people call me and ask me what I consider running for office. I spent time with the Lord in prayer, because people had asked me to run for other offices as well. I'd, uh, mayor or, or other, you know, county commissioner or, or various things, and just never really felt right. Certainly, I checked with my, Mel hates it when I call her my commanding general. Guys, we all married our commanding general, in case you didn't know that. Our adult supervision, and I'm without mine tonight, so, um, but uh, she's on her way back to Granbury. But um, we prayed about it, and you know when the Lord's telling you and making you at peace with this decision. There were ugly things said, and in those 20 years of serving, I was defending the right of every one of you and everyone else to say the ugly things that they may have wanted to say. You don't like it, but I'll defend your right to do that. There are many times, folks, in the, in the political arena, I have wanted to lay on a hands of some people and start right about here. Okay? I mean, I, I deal with those same, those same challenges. But like Apostle Paul said, there's nothing wrong with a good fight, and it's the things for which you are fighting let me, instead of going into policy, because look, I'm not here for a campaign speech. I'm here to try to bring some wisdom to you as voters, as citizens of two entities. You are citizens of the kingdom of God, and you're citizens of a representative republic called the United States, and you are citizens of the greatest state in that union, the great state of Texas. Hua, okay? Where do we get our basic foundations of government? We get it from the Bible. There are two places in, in, in Scripture, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that give us the very basic premise of government. In the New Testament, in Romans 13, Paul tells us that government's duty is to bear the sword against those that would do evil. What is the number one function of a citizen in a country that has a representative republic, I didn't say democracy, but representative republic, if that's the primary function of government, you must know the difference between good and evil to select people in government that know the difference between good and evil and what to punish and what to reward. You must know that. Second, in the Old Testament, it tells us that government, when the poor man comes before you, you do not favor him because he is poor, nor do you disfavor him because he's poor. And when the rich man comes before you, you do not favor him because he is rich, nor do you disfavor him because he is rich. That's that blind justice that you see Lady Justice holding the balance with her blindfold. There are a number of places in our Constitution that parallel Old Testament Scripture. 
How many of you know what a writ of attainder is? Do you know in the Old Testament, in the Deuteronomy, in, in the chapters of Deuteronomy that give us the sundry laws that were given after the Ten Commandments, one of those was, there shall not be corruption of blood. What that means is that if I went out and committed a crime, my wife Mel is not held to punishment the same way I would be. In the Constitution, in Article 1, it says there shall be no writ of attainder. If you commit a crime, your family is not punished. That's the kind of thing you see in totalitarian regimes like what Saddam, other people did, where they punished not just the individual, but the entire family. There's another other places. The most important scripture, well, I shouldn't say the most important because I, I couldn't, there's too many important ones. I mean, they're all important, but there's too many that I could refer to, to to tell you which one would be a favorite. Where do we get the three branches of government? Out of Isaiah 32, what does it tell us? The Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, the Lord is our judge. Legislative, executive, judicial. The only man that has ever walked to this earth that all three of those branches of government could be unified in one man is Jesus Christ. Amen. Someday that will happen. Amen. Someday when the Lord returns. He came as a lamb the first time. And Revelation 19, when you heard me talk about Christ as a veteran, Revelation 19 tells us what? It refers to Christ as the commander of the armies of heaven. We're going to have ringside seats to the biggest fight there's ever been the day he comes back. And I'm glad to have a ringside seat and not be in the ring with him. So. But there's other scriptures in, in the Old Testament as well. When Governor Perry swore me in back in 2010, the first charge that you have as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Exodus 18.21 tells us what? Choose ye righteous men, such that fear God, that hate dishonest gain, capable men to be leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Thousands is federal, hundreds is count, or state, fifties is county, cities is tens. Now that's not scriptural, it's thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, but you see the peer, the, the chain, so to speak, to choose ye righteous men. That is our duty. I do not stand before you as a righteous man. I stand before you as a sinner saved by grace. Okay. Um, I wish I could tell you we were in a better circumstance <clears throat> than what we are at the presidential level. It is not my intent to get into the depth of that. But our duty is to discern. You remember in Samuel, and a pastor, I cannot remember the, the chapter and the verse, but in Samuel, where first in First Samuel, where Samuel is told to go choose a king because the people, the nation of Israel, is clamoring for a king. And Samuel, who does he choose first? He chooses Saul. Why? Because of his outward appearance. He looked and spoke kingly. 
What did we do, or what did the children of Israel do when they chose Saul? They chose him for his outward appearance, how he appeared. Are those things important? Certainly, they're, they're important and they're, they're, a, they're a point of judgment and discernment. But what did God do with David? David was, I am as sinful as David, I am, and I'm not here to tell, tell you I'm David. What I'm trying to say is, is that anybody that stands before you and says, I ask for your vote, and I'm not doing that tonight, I'm, I'm preaching tonight, I'm not standing up as your state senator saying, I'm asking for your vote, okay? I'm trying to be very deliberate here. Your duty as a voter is to discern, does that individual understand the proper role and function of government, and does that individual understand the separation of powers of the respective branches, and the separation of powers between the states and the federal, the federal government, the states, counties, and cities. That's absolutely essential. Your job is to examine the heart. Whether that's President Obama, whether that was Mitt Romney, whether that was John McCain, whether it was Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, do not simply evaluate the outside. Can you know a man's heart or a woman's heart the way God does? Absolutely not. But Exodus 18.21 tells you, you must examine it to the best of your ability and then cast your vote accordingly. There's a number of other Gosh, um, I know that as a soldier, I've had to do something collectively, not individually, but collectively, I've had to do the hardest thing that can be asked of a human being. We love our firemen, we love our police officers, we love our military, but law enforcement and the military have a very different duty than our fire department. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I learned the hard way what those guys deal with, and they have my absolute utmost respect. But firemen are not charged with potentially taking a life the way law enforcement and the military and their duties may have to take a life. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Even in a fallen, sinful world, it is the hardest thing that you will ever do. But I live with it because I understand the difference between righteousness and evil. When that officer has to decide the protection of those he's charged to protect against an evil element of our society that refuses to live within the confines of good order and discipline, and it comes to the point that it's my life or somebody else's life or that person's. That life can be taken justifiably. We don't revel in it, but that can happen. The same thing happens militarily. In Luke 22, I find myself a, a big advocate of the Second Amendment. Article 1, Section 23 of the State Constitution is the State Constitution version of the Second Amendment. What does Luke 22 tell us? It's the story where Christ is telling the disciples, to, to sell your cloaks. You know, if you don't have a sword, 
get one. If you don't have one, sell your cloak to get a sword. Is he telling us that the preferred weapon for all time is an edged weapon? No. What he's telling us is, in creating you under the laws of nature and nature's God, you have the right to self-preservation. The Second Amendment is not about a gun. It's the most efficient means. You've heard the, the, the humorous joke, you know, the Lord created man, but Colonel Colt made him equal. Okay? I carry a cig, not a colt, but that's another story. I mean, we... The point is that whether it's in nature with the creations that we see, whether it's an active defense, a passive offense, a defense, the animal kingdom, survival of the fittest, the right to self-preservation, whether it's the animal kingdom or the human kingdom, that right is about the right to self-preservation in the Declaration of Independence, the line that most everybody remembers, because we're endowed by our Creator with certain unable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that's where most people stop. But it's not where the sentence ends. The rest of the sentence is what you charge me with as your state senator in dealing with your state government. It says that to protect these rights, governments are instituted among men. My duty is to protect your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the founders got them in the right order. When it comes to the issue of abortion, those words are not, you know, to pursue your happiness, you are at liberty to take a life. It's life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. If, if Joshua Baptist Church decided that one of its covenants would be to conduct human sacrifice because government's duty is to protect life. My duty is to protect your right to religious liberty. But if that religious liberty then threatens life, government has a role to step in. Remember when in Old Testament Scripture, God gives, gives Moses the law and administration. And He gives Aaron the church. There is a separation of function. There is not a separation of influence of the church on government. Government's duty is not to come in and tell you how to conduct your sacraments. But you have every obligation to influence your government by how you vote and the values for which you choose the men and women that will represent you at all levels of government. And it's most important for this reason, and I'll conclude with this thought, and I'll go back to my military training if I may. At Command and General Staff College, the same folks that tell you, be good, be brief, be gone, they tell us that there are four elements of national power. Diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. But all of those are exercised by the most fundamental national power, and that is our spiritual national power. The moral clarity to know what is right and what is wrong. We have our own example here in Texas. When Colonel Travis took his sword, drew the line in the sand, did he have diplomatic power? No. Did he have informational power? No. 
Did he have military power? He had some, but not nearly what could match Santa Ana. And did he have economic power? No. But what did he have? He had the spiritual power of understanding right and wrong, and there's times to fight. You've got to pick your fights carefully, choose them carefully, and if anybody ever picks one with you, don't be afraid of responding. There are times, I mean, I, I ask for your prayer as your state senator. Um, I deal with the same challenges. The, I mean, I, I had something happen today that just made me mad. You know, that laying on a hands right about here. I mean, that's where... Um, we live in a fallen, sinful world. I love serving you because I'm just a crispy old guy that's watching his country die, and I don't want to see my liberties bleed out with it. I want to see our nation return to righteousness to be exalted rather than to be, you know, we don't presuppose God's motives. You must not only pray, you must act. You must be on the battlefield to make your country great. If you're not on the battlefield, you're absent and you're derelict in your duty as I've laid it out for you in Scripture. It's right at just a moment or two before 8 o'clock. Pastor said to, to take a question or two. I'd be more than pleased to, whether it's from the student section or any of the other sections. I'd be more than happy to. Anybody want to, anything you want to ask about? Uh, is your shot at me? I got 800,000 constituents. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir, for your military service. Oh, happy to have given it. question is, you're asking what happens on the other side of that bridge, and I can't, I can't predict the future for you. Um, I hope I summarized your question appropriately. I am, I am going to carry the Convention of States bill in the State Senate this coming legislative session, which is designed to rebalance the proper role between federal and state power. When the federal government, and I hope you and I know I'm going past 8 o'clock. I'm happy to stay as long as y'all need me to, but if anybody needs to step out, go get kids. Good. 
I do not want you to feel captive to me. I very much appreciate your respect in staying, but please do not feel captive to me in, in, in answering the question. So, but the states created the federal government. I'm going to go the long way around the barn here to answer your question, if you don't mind, but there's some background to it that I want to, I want to provide some context. When the 13 original states gathered, those 13 states used their collective sovereign power to create the federal government. The federal government is the subcontractor to the prime contractor, which is the legislative sovereign power of the collective states. To go do the Article I, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution functions that were charged to the federal government. In 1911, when the 17th Amendment was ratified, which changed how we choose our U.S. Senators, prior to that, the U.S. Senators were chosen by the state legislature. With the ratification of the 17th Amendment, that now the people of the United States in their respective states choose their senators. We profoundly change the contract and the customer of the U.S. Senate. That customer used to be how the states protected themselves from Washington, from the federal government. As an example, if we, if we didn't have the 17th Amendment, Senator Cruz would come back in two years in 2018 and say, I protected the state of Texas and its ability to decide for itself marriage, religious liberty, all, all those things, the state and its collective authority was what the senators were to go protect. In 1911, when we changed that to the individual citizen choosing their senators, it was a complete fallacy to believe that individual citizens would walk into the voting booth, vote for their U.S. representative because I want this from Uncle Sam, and then vote for their U.S. senator to say no because I want to protect state sovereignty. We turned the United States Senate into the same thing the House of Representatives was. And a hundred years later, instead of it being the state's power with a dashed line in the organizational chart over to the federal government, go do these things, leave us alone, but go do these national things, roads, mail, national security, foreign, uh, the, the various, the 18 things listed in Article 1, Section 8. Go do these functions. Once we change that, the organizational chart over the last hundred years has changed to simply a straight command and control Federal government tells the states, tells the counties, tells the cities what to do. We did as states, and I'll use the, the Old Testament example, we did as states what Esau did with Jacob. We sold our state sovereignty, our ability to make decisions for ourselves as individual sovereign states to Uncle Sam for federal dollars. That's what's been happening for the last century. And it's now reached a breaking point where folks are absolutely fed up with this. And I am. Now, here's the answer to your question. Given the number of people that vote in the country, and because the Constitution in Article 7 brings forward the Declaration as original law, so when it says 
We ordain this in Article Seven. It says we ordain this Constitution in the year of our Lord, uh, seventeen eighty nine, and the twelfth year of the United States. Twelve years previous, we hadn't reached thirteen yet, even though seventeen seventy six, seventeen eighty nine is thirteen, but we're in March of seventeen eighty nine, which means we're in the twelfth year. We're about to hit the thirteenth. But in that statement, in Article 7 of the U.S. Constitution, that brings forward the Declaration as original law. The Declaration of Independence is our vision statement. The Constitution is its application. One of the key statements in the Declaration of Independence is what? The very first sentence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands that have connected them to another, there is no statutory lawful separation from the United States. If we do, it'll be at the business end of a bayonet. I don't want to see us go there. But your question is prescient because of the fear of where we are as a nation today. That's the answer to your question. Others, I know I went long. I, I know when you give a politician a microphone, it's all bad. So, yes, ma'am. I, do not apply that word to me, okay? I'm so, no, but I. Yeah. 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 May I let me let me repeat the question, if I may? The question is how long? Not careful. You're right. You're right, Pastor. You're right. But it's but I mean you you have teed up a low hanging curve for me. I mean because. Because I want to give you a very biblical answer to your question. And I want to give you a structure of government answer to your question. Proper role and function. Because it isn't just proper role and function of government at large, but government, be it federal, government, be it state, government, be it county, government, be it city, government, be it school district. Because remember, when, Christ, when, when God separated Moses and Aaron, he separated the functions. He didn't necessarily separate the influence. Okay? Let me answer the question this way. First, Article 1, Section 8 specifies that the federal government has primacy of immigration. It says that the federal government shall adopt a standard immigration or a standard uh, means of immigration. That's nearly what the Bible tells us in the Deuteronomy laws because remember a lot of folks when we use the word sanctuary cities, sanctuary cities were scriptural in being able to avoid punishment or revenge of the family. Sanctuary cities in the scripture does not mean you are given sanctuary to violate the law. It was sanctuary from the family. Completely. So when you've got folks standing up and saying, you know, we want sanctuary cities, because I see those folks. 
we want sanctuary cities, they're asking to say, please make it okay to violate the law. Once you do that, what do you have? You have anarchy because once you say it's okay to violate A, then the next question is what? Well, why can't I violate B? Why can't I violate C? I mean, I, I could give you some presidential examples, and I don't, I don't need to, to do that here. I wear the scars of our country not knowing who is here. Nineteen of the 19 hijackers, 18 came into the country legally and overstayed their visas. If you want to see what radical Islamic terrorism looks like, I can take my shirt off for you. I wouldn't want, I don't want to traumatize you. I don't want to, okay? I am not the spelt young lieutenant I used to be back in 1984, okay? But I'm again, extra crispy as opposed to original recipe. The point is this, there are too many times as Christians we take what are instructions that are biblical to us and conflate them upon government. Is charity, is compassion a function of government? No. So when I had a radio interview almost a year ago as the Syrian crisis was, was going on, and people were, you know, well, you know, don't you think that, you know, we need to show compassion? And I said, you're asking me, wearing my hat as a government official, if we should show compassion to the Syrians. And the answer is no. My first compassion is to your safety, your life, and my responsibilities to you as a citizen. And I don't care what color you are. Okay? Those 19 hijackers, not a one of them were Hispanic. My stepfather grew up in San Patricio County down by Corpus Christi. His best friend was named Johnny Zapata. I hope I said that right. I think I was pretty close. I really, I cannot roll my R's the way, you know, because I've seen some names and testimony down in. Now, let me get more specific because you've got to understand when it's okay if this church wants to put together care packages and send them to folks that are doing gospel and refugee relief in Syria. Absolutely appropriate. But as a government official, my duty is your protection of your life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. I had, I was at a meeting a year or so ago, and I mean, it was frustrating because in some ways, people are thinking that, you know, well, we've got to let these folks in. And I'm like, no, we don't. Where does it say that, the, that America's immigration system is to be treated like a lottery for the rest of the world to see who gets to come here? If it's in the interest of the safety, the financial health, the economic health, the physical health of the people of the United States to say no to everybody and shut down all immigration in the United States, so be it. Well, I don't want to, but, but you see the difference when I put on, remember, in the Islamic faith, you know what a caliphate is. Have you, you've heard the term caliphate. Okay, you've, everybody's heard the term, you don't know, okay, you've heard the term caliphate. What is the difference between the Islamic faith with a caliphate and a representative republic? 
we have a separation of function. The senior official in the United States may very well be a Christian, but he is not imposing religious doctrine on the people of the United States. In a caliphate, because remember, Moses, Aaron. In a caliphate, the senior religious leader is also the senior executive, and they are unified. Remember when King Uzziah, in Old Testament Scripture, I think it's in 2 Kings, Pastor? King Uzziah, one of the good kings, goes in the temple to, to perform the sacraments that are normally reserved for the priests of the Levites. What does God do? He strikes him immediately. Now, King Uzziah was a good king, but what did he do? He, he violated the separation of function between the church and the state. Now, when you hear people say separation of church and state, that's not in the Constitution of the United States. But scripturally, there's a separation of function. Government picks up the sword, not religion. Religion helps shape your character and what you are. But government's duty is your protection of your rights, your safety, your economic viability, mostly with its passivity, not with its activity. But there are places it clearly has to be active. As to why the borders cannot be secured, in Texas we're doing a number of things, but remember it is primarily a federal function. I'll give you an example. I chair the Border Security Subcommittee in the State Senate, and I'm I don't, again, I, do not, I hope I'm not filibustering, Pastor. I know I'm, it's, it's 8.15, and I've, you know, the, you've, you've pulled the chain on the chainsaw, and I'm off and running. I mean, I've, but the state of Texas can do some things, but because the federal government is the government charged with the primacy of national security and immigration, and Texas can come up beside the federal government as a governmental entity, and be a supporting effort to the federal government's main effort, that can happen. The problem is we have an, a challenge of political will. We have a lot of great border patrol guys that we work with, but when the federal government, particularly under this president and this administration, and a Congress that won't fight him on it, I'll just be brutal if I may be so bold, okay? a Congress that won't fight him on it, that what we have is Texas is in the foxhole with only the small amount of legal authority we have. We do not have the authority, short of a presidential authorization, we do not have the authority to enforce immigration law. So if somebody comes across the Rio Grande River and the only probable cause that that DPS officer has for the crime that's been committed is to unlawfully enter the country. We are compelled to turn them over to the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol then turns them over to DA, to, to Department of Homeland Security and Immigration Customs Enforcement. And then like the old Southwest Airline commercial, ding, you're free to move about the country. DHS walks them to the gate and says, ding, you're free to move about the country. There are very few being deported because with DACA and, and the, what's called the Priority Enforcement Program, the federal government is basically saying only the worst of the worst will be deported and everybody else gets to stay. The federal government under this administration is suborning federal law. 
and claiming executive privilege to do so. Now what happens when a local official says, I won't obey the law? Not good. What happens when the chief executive of the federal government, the highest elected individual person in the country, does that? That sets a terrible example and terrible precedent around our country. So our problem is that in many cases, those of us on the conservative side of the aisle, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this a partisan battle, but for the expediency of claiming I'm a racist, you only want to enforce the law because you don't like Hispanics. I've been commanded by Hispanics, and I've had the honor of commanding Hispanics. I've been commanded by African Americans, and I've had the honor of commanding African Americans. I've been commanded by an Asian Pacific Islander, and I've had the privilege of commanding Asian and Pacific. In Scripture, it does not speak to, you know, what races get... The southern border is what it is along the countries that it is. And once you say it's okay to violate the law, where do you stop? And so, that, I mean, I know I've gone long. It's but sound like the Hispanics, the Honduras, people yeah. from Salvador that are all coming from Nicaragua. They're yeah. all coming in through the Mexican border. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that Mexico is complicit with it. Yes. But it... The question is, do we faithfully execute the laws or do now, do we live under the rule of man rather than the rule of law and it is simply the interpretation of the person occupying the office as to whether the law will be obeyed or not? Now, how many of you want to go live in that society? No. It is 820 pastor. I've given the law, I've given the doctoral dissertation on two answers to two questions. I'm sorry. I will hang out for a little bit. It's been my absolute treat to join y'all. I hope that I've been uh, uh, a blessing to y'all, not only in faith, but in uh, the proper role and function of government, um, how to make that evaluation. Look, it's tough. It's tough judgment. Look, the, the easy votes in the state Senate, you know, pro-life, pro-abortion, that's an easy vote. It's when they're not so easy, where you're affirming a right on both sides of a, on a yes or a no. And we face a very difficult, very difficult decision. We really do. Number of challenges. But it's your duty to make that decision. Do not vacate the battlefield. Because the only, the first requirement, I'll give you one last quote from Napoleon. The first requirement to win the battle is to be on the battlefield. God bless you guys. Thank you for being on the battlefield. It's been a treat to be with you. Who are? Thank you. Thank you.